June 17, 1983, recording the 11th annual Santa Barbara Writers' Conference. This is the opening session on tape number one. Underway. First, let me introduce myself. My name is Paul Lazarus. Uh, I've been around the Writers' Conference for, I guess, seven or eight years. Uh, my function is kind of an amorphous one. As I told uh, last year's conference, uh, Barnaby and Mary said to me, you must have a title, how about coordinator? And I said, no, I don't feel like a coordinator. And they said, what would you like to be? And I said, Pope. Uh, and they said, no, that's taken. Uh, I offered to accept the title of King Emperor. And they said, no, that was taken too. So uh, I suggested that I be third vice president. And it's a very good job because there are no other vice presidents. And I, I can be, depending on Barney and Mary's feeling, I can be promoted to second or dropped to fourth at a moment's notice. In any event, uh, we have a number of innovations on our program this year. One of them is this session. Uh, we have so many new students and so many of them have said, I'm confused, I don't know where to go, what to do, and what it's about, that we thought we'd take a few minutes before we introduce our feature speaker to uh, try and tell you how this conference works. To the old timers, and we have many who have been here four, five, six, as many as eight or nine years, um, you'll talk among yourselves if you don't want to listen to this, but uh, we have a lot of people who do want to hear it. All right, first let me explain the operation of the workshops. Every morning, starting tomorrow, there will be workshops, uh, and these are the list of workshop leaders and their subjects and their room numbers. There's another list outside, there's another list in, uh, in the registration area, and there is a list in uh, the kit which you got when you registered. Uh, the workshops start at 9 o'clock, although tomorrow morning only we will meet here at 9 o'clock to give you an opportunity to listen to all of the workshop leaders, very briefly. Uh, I'm going to introduce them now just to take a bow so that you know what they look like, and tomorrow morning we'll go down the list again and uh, ask each workshop leader to talk for no more than two minutes on his or her plans, programs, procedures for the workshop. We have an all-American team of six people leading fiction workshops. Uh, the team is led by uh, our peerless leader, Barnaby Conrad. Uh, I don't think Barnaby is here yet, uh, but you, you will uh, all have met him or will meet him shortly. Second, uh, and I'm doing these alphabetically, not in order of uh, number of publications or beauty or anything else. Uh, second is Phyllis Giebauer. Where is Phyllis? Uh, as you see, Phyllis is very unpopular. Third, uh, one of the stars in our diadem, uh, Anita Clay Kornfeld. Anita? Way in back. Next, a man who has been a regular for many, many years, he missed last year, uh, published author, book publisher, professor at the University of Iowa, 
great creative writer, Jack Leggett. Where are you? There's, there's Jack over there. Another longtime veteran who's been teaching fiction in our workshops, I think almost since the beginning of the conference, Niels Mortensen. There's Niels way in back. And last of the fiction, fictioneers, uh, a man who's had several bestsellers, has written for the screen, uh, an expert in dramatic writing, Sid Stiebel. Where's Sid? In the area of nonfiction, we have uh, two main courses. One is Bill Downey. Where's Bill? Way back in the, I don't know why all the workshop leaders are sitting in the back. They're afraid. Second, uh, in nonfiction, Cork Milner. For those uh, who are interested in poetry, uh, we have had a poetry workshop leader for many years who is now teaching for our workshop the right brain experience uh, and poetry as a subheading. Marilee Zdenek. There she is. Marilee has a big book on the right brain experience coming out this fall, already picked up by one of the book clubs. Uh, in the area of juvenile writing, Another one of our veterans, the Queen of San Diego, Joan Oppenheimer. Now, uh, a perennial favorite in our conference, and for anyone who is uh, interested in more than sitting in a room and hacking at a typewriter, but is also interested in seeing books sold, uh, we have an expert in marketing, Frances Halpern. Fran, there she is. A new workshop, a new workshop this year, uh, and you'll hear more about it tomorrow, but it will function in all areas of writing, fiction, plays, TV, screen, and that's a workshop in humor. We've never had one before, and it will be run by Ian Bernard. On Sunday afternoon, we are going to have a workshop in biography and autobiography and writing profiles of people. This is also a new workshop. If enough people are interested, uh, we will continue it uh, during the rest of the week or uh, at intervals during the week. But Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock, Ted Berkman will run a workshop on biography. Where's Ted? We're standing in back. Is Marty Hansen here? Marty will also run a single workshop on Thursday in how to write a musical. And uh, while I have not heard his earlier workshops, I understand they are fascinating. I recommend it to you. Um, finally, the last workshop is my own. Uh, my group will be meeting in the garden room, and we will be working in the area of screenplays and television plays. So much uh, for the morning workshop, workshops. They will convene at 9 o'clock. They will run uh, until 11.30, 12 o'clock every day. You are urged... Is the boat rocking? 
Uh, you are urged uh, tomorrow, let me say, uh, for, the, for the fiction workshops, we are going to ask you to pull a workshop leader's name from a container that we have, so that for the first day we can get an even distribution of students among the six fiction workshops. The other specialties you're free, you'll be free to go to on your own. Uh, after tomorrow, you're free to uh, go to the smorgasbord table, go to any workshop you want. You are not, uh, uh, you don't have to stay with the one you start with. You uh, wander around. Uh, we've got a lot of talent here, and most of the people that you will talk to who've been at earlier conferences will tell you of the help that they have gotten, the guidance, the advice, the benefits that they have gotten in the workshops. So I commend you uh, to the practice of moving around, uh, trying different, in different workshop leaders until, uh, and unless you want to try them all, uh, we've got time. Uh, in any event, uh, don't, unless you are fixed in what you want to do, don't fasten on a single workshop leader unless that's going to solve your problem. All right, uh, next let me explain a practice we have called pirate workshops. Pirate workshops are, and don't ask me why they are called pirate workshops because I don't know, but uh, they are special wor workshops that convene. All right, that's as good an explanation as any. Uh, the, uh, these pirate workshops convene after the feature speech in the evening, usually at 10 o'clock or thereabouts. We will be running two pirate workshops each night. One will be in the Santa Barbara room, which is below this. You have to go down the driveway and there's an entrance there. The other one will be in Oak Cottage. And there will be a different pirate workshop leader in each of these workshops each night. We're going to cut it up among the various members of the staff. Uh, you are urged to attend these if you like. There are some people who don't want to go to the bar after the uh, evening speech or don't want to go to bed. They want to continue working. Uh, the purpose of the pirate workshop is to give you an opportunity to read your work aloud to a group chaired by one of the workshop leaders and uh, to listen to critiques by your peers and by the workshop leader. The readings will be limited to 10 minutes maximum so that everyone can have a chance to read, and you're all welcome. Uh, we had The reason we've expanded it to two workshops this year is because we were so crowded last year when we had only one that very often people couldn't get in. So this year, there will be a pirate workshop downstairs and another one in Oak Cottage look at your diagram in, in your kit, and they will begin directly after the feature speech each evening. No, there will be no pirate workshop tonight. The first one will be tomorrow night. Um, that's because we're getting off a little later tonight than, than uh, we would normally get started. Um, another new development we have this year, and that is that we will have a daily bulletin um, I have the first copy here, and this, has, uh, this is volume one, number one, a true first edition. Uh, they will be distributed uh, to each of you as you leave the auditorium tonight at the rear. Uh, this is being written and edited by 
a lady who has been at the Writers' Conference for nine years. Uh, she started as a student and has come back every year because uh, uh, I think she gets tired of staying home. Uh, but in any event, uh, she's going to need help in filling up two pages uh, each day. There is a box at the front desk with, uh, and the name of the publication is the same as on that little memo pad you got in your kit, the right on. Uh, and there's a box where you can drop any suggestions, comments, contributions, uh, reports on yourself, what you are doing, what you have written, whatever you want. And uh, they will be picked up daily by the editor. And I'd like you to see her now uh, so that you know what she looks like and grab her. Uh, don't grab her. Uh, talk to her uh, as you pass her uh, on the campus. Jan Curran, will you stand up, please? Just as in my, uh, you using my prerogative of having a microphone and she can't answer me, I'd like to say that um, I have no, no criticism of the way this is written. Cosmetically, it looks as if she did it in the dark. Uh, and uh, she has assured me that uh, tomorrow's issue is going to be lined up perfectly and will not look as if she threw the items on, at the page. But uh, it's good reading, and this will keep you apprised of changes in schedule, apprised of special features that may be uh, booked during the week. Uh, it will keep you up to date on what's going on at the conference. Uh, it's recommended for daily reading. You'll get your first copy. This is the Saturday issue you'll get as you leave here. Beginning Sunday morning, they will be in the, way, in the area where you registered this afternoon when you checked in. There will be a table and a pile of these things by 8 o'clock in the morning. So pick them up on your way to breakfast or on your way to a workshop and keep abreast of what's going on. I should also say about uh, Jan Curran, she is the founder, chairman, and principal perpetrator of a thing you may hear of during the week, which is uh, the Damon Grunion Awards. Uh, they are, uh, they are given out at our final awards session uh, next Friday morning. Uh, Jan and a few of her uh, intimates decide uh, who are to get the Damon Grunion Awards each year. They come, it comes as a surprise. They're given to students and staff alike, uh, always for some special achievement, such as uh, for the greatest amount of time spent in the bar or uh, the greatest number of workshops slept through. Uh, or, or an award for the best all-around camper. Uh, in it, you don't know what the, the categories are going to be, but they are part of our award schedule. And um, if you're nice to Jan, maybe she'll give you an award. Um, another innovation we have this year, and I commend this to our first-timers. During the first couple of days of the conference, there are always so many questions. And so much, uh, I wish I knew about this, or I, I wish I knew where to go, that we will have an information and question desk, which, again, will be in the area where you register today. This is between the dining room and the front desk in that little alleyway. Mary Conrad will be there as of 8 tomorrow morning and will stay as long as uh, there are questions. Following tomorrow, uh, the desk will be manned by Mary or another member of our staff 
from 11.30 to 12.30 every morning. So at the end of your workshop, if you have a question about schedule or room or whatever, go to whoever's at that desk and they will try their best to answer the question. Still another new development for this year. For the first time, we have scholarships. This started uh, last year. The conference developed such enthusiasm that one of our local residents, Mr. Esdras Hartley and his wife, came up to Barney at the end of the, of the conference and said, we'd like to give you a check to be used for the conference next year. And uh, fortunately, uh, cooler heads were around and prevented Barney from putting the money in his pocket. Uh, and we uh, created out of those funds two scholarships. Uh, and it was determined that we would give one scholarship to a senior citizen in Santa Barbara and the other scholarship to a university student. The premise being that these would go to two people who would not otherwise be able to attend the conference. And we're very proud that we have our first two scholarship winners here, winners of the Hartley Scholarship for this year. First one is Edie Bliss. Where are you, Edie? There she is. Edie is the wife of a retired Air Force colonel and has been working with Bill Downey on her writing and was selected because she shows extra talent. From UCSB, from the university, uh, our scholarship winner is Michael Colon. Where are you, Mike? There he is, way back in the corner. And uh, as testimony of his capability, last Sunday at the university, he won two checks, one for the best, uh, second best uh, play, and another one for honorable mention in screenplays. So that he, uh, this year he has, <laughs> this year he won his letter in two sports. Um, another new scholarship that we have was given by one of our uh, former students who is here again, Mr. Buck Niehoff. And his scholarship winner is a student at Denison University uh, whose writing so impressed Buck that he created a scholarship for him. Charles Owens, where are you? There he is. All the people I'm introducing seem to hide in dark places. And the third, uh, the third scholarship uh, is being given by Mary and Barnaby Conrad. And this goes to the winner of the annual Ernest Hemingway contest, which is run in Los Angeles, gets a lot of publicity. It's a prize given for uh, the best Hemingway-like submission. And it was won this year by a young lady named Linda Leidegger. Where are you, Linda? Way in back. And uh, to the judge's complete consternation, uh, the macho Hemingway style <laughs> was best copied by little Linda. Uh, I also want to tell you that all of these scholarships have been renewed for next year. 
And we are delighted and we thank Mr. and Mrs. Hartley and Mr. Niehoff and the Conrads. Uh, we are we're delighted that we're able to bring people to the conference to get the benefits of the conference, people who might otherwise not have been able to come. Uh, all right. We have still one more major innovation. Last year, you will remember, for the first time, we introduced the sound recordings, uh, the on-site service. And they have a booth outside in the lobby and a flyer that you can look at, which tells you what they're going to cover. These are lectures and uh, workshops and whatever that they will record during the actual performance and will be available if you want to buy them as you leave the auditorium. And last year we found that uh, our students loved that idea, that they would attend a Josh Logan lecture on their way out, buy the tape of the lecture, and bring it back and get it autographed by Josh Logan. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it worked just fine. They sold loads and loads of tapes. This year we have added one other facet to uh, our recording of the conference. And that is the video camera that is sitting right there, uh, which will record all lectures. Uh, and there will be a booth in the lobby where you can sign up for and pay for uh, videotapes of the lectures if you want. Uh, they will cost $50 plus a small handling charge, but uh, they will, uh, obviously they can't be instantaneously available, but they will be shipped to you from the, the office in San Diego uh, in a very short time. For those of you who have video equipment and would like uh, a permanent record of some of the lectures, I commend them to you. Uh, we have set the camera up there where we'll be able to uh, focus directly on the speaker, not me, but the speaker, and uh, I commend you to their booth. Um, also in the lobby we have uh, the Tecalote Bookstore with copies of the books written by some of our students, some of our workshop leaders, uh, anyone who is connected with the conference who has been published you will find copies of their books there. Um, and they will be there every day uh, during the course of the conference. All right. Um, we, on Friday morning, we also give out, we conduct two other competitions, which are held during this week. Uh, they are traditional in the Writers' Conference. The first one, and Barnaby usually does this, but he asked me to do it tonight. The first one is a prize for the worst opening sentence for a book or article. What sentence can you conceive of which will immediately cause the reader to put the, the, the thing down <laughs> and say, that's it, you know, I, I don't want to go any further. Uh, we give a prize of little or no value um, <laughs> for the, the uh, worst opening sentence that you can think of. We've had some beauties in the past. Barney's got them in his pocket, and I, I don't, don't remember them. But um, think, it, think it over carefully. Now, there is a box at the front desk. There are two boxes there. One is for 
uh, our daily bulletin that you can put contributions in. The other is for uh, submissions for the competition. Think about it, and uh, we close both competitions Thursday at noon. The judges will then sit and read through this garbage and uh, make their, uh, their astute selection. The second competition is also traditional. We give a single word or a single thought to the entire conference, and they can submit up to a thousand words in any form of literary writing that they choose. It can be poetry, it can be drama, it can be screenplay, it can be fiction, it can be nonfiction. Any of the areas that are listed in our workshops, we will welcome your comments on. And the title this year, appropriately enough, and this took a great deal of thinking, the title is a single word, rejection. Uh, that's probably a strange word to most of you. <laughs> but, and we don't necessarily mean literary rejection. This could be just your re being rejected as a human being. Uh, we, we'll accept any form of rejection you want. Um, you can uh, drop those contributions in that same box at the, uh, at the front desk or if you choose, hand them to a workshop leader, and he or she will see that we get them. I think that takes care of most of the agenda. Um, that leaves me only the privilege of introducing to you your speaker for the evening. Uh, he is a tradition here. Every Santa Barbara's right, Santa Barbara Writers Conference since the first one has had as its opening speaker Ray Bradbury. And the <laughs> and Hello, Ray. I see that I don't have to give his list of credits, um, ranging from the Martian Chronicles to uh, the Disney picture which he uh, just helped create or created called Something Wicked This Way Comes. Um, he's, a, he's a fixture, uh, he's a delight, he's a pleasure to have at our conference each year, and I commend to you your speaker for the evening. Mr. Ray Bradbury. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, okay. okay. Before you're through, would you sign this release for the videotape? Gosh, you want to? <sighs> well, what didn't I say last year? Hey, uh, you know, I didn't enjoy the dinner tonight. Uh, McDonald's has spoiled me. <laughs> How do you feel about it? Well, all right. <laughs> uh, I should tell you a story about something wicked this way comes first, because it really happened. These crazy encounters you have with studio people over the years, you don't believe them until they happen to you. 
but uh, the film has taken 25 years to get made, two years in production the last two years. And along the way, you're fighting with the studio all the time, your director, the art director, the production heads. It's a miracle that a film is finished without everyone killing one another. And along the way, about eight months ago, <clears throat> I went on the set one day, and they were finishing shooting a sequence with all these spiders in these boys' rooms, a nightmare sequence, and they brought in, they hired 200 tarantulas for the scene from Spider's Equity or something of that sort. <laughs> and real ones, and they tried to get me to handle the damn things, and of course I wouldn't. And they said, they're safe, and I said, yes, I know, but uh, I don't much care for tarantulas. Well, they finished the sequence, and you'll see it in the film, and they shot a new scene in which the boy, the next morning, waking up from this nightmare, steps out of bed, steps on something, screams, bends down out of sight and ri r rises up, holding in his hand a Mickey Mouse doll, huh? Okay. So I saw that, and I went to the head of the studio. I said, what is that? You know, you're going to ruin the film. Get Mickey Mouse out of there. You know, this be, the critics all over the world are going to say, what's Mickey Mouse doing in Something Wicked This Way Comes? And I said, no, no, it's a funny scene. We need a little humor. <laughs> and uh, I thought, God, what do I do to get, you know, and I, I was a member of the Mickey Mouse Club when I was 12, so, and my love of the studio goes, you know, back to when I was eight years old. So I thought, what do I do to get this doll out of the film? And I can't do it with pressure. I can't do it with anger. So I said, humor is the only answer. So I went home and prepared my own poster for the film, and distributed among all the heads of the studio and the promotion people and publicity people. And I changed the title of the film to Something Mickey, This Way Comes. <laughs> and got him out of the film the next day. Huh? <laughs> it's, the only, it's the only way, isn't it? Now, I brought along a lot of stuff. I always do. I never know what I'm going to use. Bits and pieces of poetry, things I've done during the last year, and uh, my own excitements. And um, I brought a poem I'm not going to read called The More Carl Sagan Speaks, The Less I Know. <laughs> now, Carl knows that poem, so it's all right. It's not, I'm not being mean. It's just that, don't you have that feeling? <laughs> when you watch Cosmos, that wonderful one that he did, again, they repeated it three weeks ago, where he, they have the, uh, the enzymes lining up the DNA particles, huh? And the, uh, the enzymes come along and shoulder the DNA particles, and all the particles line up like this, you know, and form into groups, you know, of clusters, and it's all very beautiful. And I said to Carl one day, I said, yeah, but what tells the enzyme to do that? Huh? And he says, so, uh, it just does. And that's it. That's, that's the final scientific answer. <laughs> we don't know, huh? We end with mystery, and I don't want to be mystical. That's not what I'm trying to be. It's just that finally... The further down into the microcosm you go, the further up into the macrocosm, you end in mystery, and we're not going to solve that. What we can solve is ways to behave, to survive in the midst of the mystery. That's what science is all about. So, but let's not pretend we know everything, because we're not going to know it, ever. So um, I've had a lot of friendly arguments with Carl about this, and we get on very well. So I'm not going to read that poem. And, uh, but I brought along a lot of other notes, for instance. Where do you get ideas? There's so much exciting going on all the time. Did you see that item in the newspaper a month ago? 
about the woman who gave birth to her child 60 days after she died? Did you read that? It's incredible, huh? And those of you who know about it, you can tell those of you who didn't see the story. But this woman died about um, eight, ten weeks ago, and the doctors kept her body alive after the brain had died. And they fed the body intravenously, they fed the fetus intravenously, so that it came to fruition 60 days after her death, and when the child was ready to be born, they birthed it from the dead woman, huh? Incredible, incredible. What an age this is, huh? That child is, will be able to say at a late age, I'm a product of this amazing time that saved me from death, huh? With this fabulous uh, daring to try a thing like that. In any other age, it would have been considered blasphemy, you know? You'd have been burned at the stake for that. So these kinds of ideas are so irresistible, aren't they, when you see them? Um, when you, uh, well, for, for instance, uh, a book came out, uh, a whole, whole series of books over the years I've tried to keep myself in touch with. I don't know how familiar you are with books on the senses, but you as writers should go to the library, and there are not many good books on this, uh, only a few in each field. What about the sense of smell? What do you know about that? There are two or three good basic books on that. Go read them and learn them so that as you grow older in your writing, you'll be able to smell your stories, huh? And touch, the, what about the sense of touch? What about the sense of seeing? What about hearing? All these things. Do you know about those things? What about reading one good book on that subject? I read my first book on the sense of smell uh, 35 years ago, and I'm sure that it's permeated all of my books since. And they fa anyway, it's fascinating. It's like going in your grandma's uh, pantry, isn't it, when you're a child, and reading all the names of the spices, the cinnamons from far India, and all the peppers and paprikas, and these names that roll off the tongue, huh? So then you're educating your tongue, you're educating your nose, and along the way these things begin to creep into your stories. People are always saying, uh, how is it that you're able to attack the reader the way you attack them? I says, because I've educated my eye and my nose and my ear and my tongue and my hands to touch. But why go around losing all these things if you're going to be writers? So a very simple thing to do, go to the library, get these books, get them into your subconscious so they begin to come out your fingertips when you write. Now, there's a new book out I got excited about during the last six months. I haven't had a chance to really go into it, but it's called Unbuilt America. Unbuilt America. It's a history of all the cities, all the towns, all the buildings that have never been built, huh? that were dreamt. Huh? All the architects. It makes a, for a fabulous thing. It should have been done years ago. It's so obvious, isn't it, that someone should have said, for God's sake, why not go to all the major architects in the world and say, give me your dreams. Huh? Give me these things you dreamt at night, the cities you wanted to build and never got a chance to. And they've got all these designs, all these blueprints uh, laid out, uh, fa fabulous sketches. Uh, during the last 20 years, before he died about two years ago, I knew Frank Lloyd Wright Jr., the architect, who was in many ways just as good as Papa. He, his name doesn't get around as much, but he built the wonderful glass church down at a Portuguese bend. That's always given credit to, they give credit to his father. No, no, that's the son did that. And uh, it's a landmark in California the last 40 years. So he was just as obstreperous and fantastic as his father. And I felt so 
uh, happy to be sitting at his feet and to listen to him. He showed me the plans he made for downtown Los Angeles in 1922. Huh? He was going to turn Bunker Hill into the hills of Athens. That's a damn good idea because it'd be better than what they got down there right now, huh? Right? And the damn fools, what have they done? They cut the hill down. <laughs> and then when they cut the hill down, they built. <laughs> Why not leave the hill up and build on top of the hill? So these kinds of ideas. So this, the title of this book is Unbuilt America. And you look through it and you see all these cities that were never done. And all the towns and all the streets and all the buildings. That's the grist for your stories, you see. Now, for God's sake, when's the last time you were in an architectural bookstore, huh? Have you ever been in one? Aren't you ashamed you never have been? These, these are not special places. They don't belong to architects. They belong to you. All these specialty stores you think you don't belong in, huh? All the toy shops you haven't visited recently. For shame. For shame. Get in the architectural bookstore and prowl around. And because, after all, these are the buildings you live in. These are the cities that make you. Huh? The history of the world is the history of buildings, the stages on which we live our lives. So not to know that makes you really ignorant, doesn't it, huh? You're really ignorant. Now, for God's sake, get the hell out of here tomorrow and go to an architectural bookstore. It's, anyway, it's fun. It's not just good for you. It's fun. Then there's a wonderful man, John Soane. I visited his museum in London 25 years ago and fell so in love with it that I got the blueprint for his building and used it as my letterhead the last 10 years or so. People think it's my own house, of course. And it's a fabulous museum with a, with a sarcophagus in the basement, which is where I want to be buried in about 30 years, huh? in the basement of Soane's Museum at 13 Lincoln Inns Field, London. But this man was a maniac, most, most architects are. And his pictures, there's a book of his out now, which is uh, paperback, not too expensive, I don't think, maybe 10 bucks. And uh, it's a history of his ideas and the dreams he had for rebuilding the city of London, the Bank of London, building a fabulous city on a bridge over uh, the, the Thames River, huh? Much better than the Bridge of Size. Uh, down in Florence or anything you'd see anywhere else in the world. So just to look at those buildings causes the spirit to soar, all these, these unbuilt buildings. So I think that's a good way to start the evening with that sort of thing. And uh, uh, the, the fact that uh, I came across this and I've written a poem on it, but it's not good enough yet. I hope some year I'll finish the damn thing and it'll be good enough to read. Did you know that Cervantes and Shakespeare died on the same day, huh? Now that's cataclysmic, isn't it? These giants, both of them being knocked over and fall into the grave in the same afternoon. So that the whole continent shakes, doesn't it? Avalanches of tears pour out of the Arctic wastes. Huh? All the uh, snows come down the mountainside celebrating with sadness the fall of these two literary heroes. Well, that's the stuff from which ideas come. And your, uh, your purpose in the world is to find those ideas and put them down before they get away from you. What about the title of a wonderful book by a, a new young, fairly young writer named James Crumley. Came out last couple of years ago called The Last Good Kiss. The Last Good Kiss. That has such resonance, doesn't it? That the older one gets, one gets to thinking about that, doesn't one, huh? And every time someone kisses you really nicely, huh? 
And it gets rarer as the years go on, huh? I mean, boy, howdy. Um, every time you get a really good one, you think, God, is this it? Huh? <laughs> When's the next one, huh? And where do I line up? And uh, so that's, you see these little things, these little things, which are so important. Uh, and then you save them. When my daughters gradually moved out of the house, they're uh, all between the ages of 25 and 33 now, four of them. So they're all gone. But along the way, what they've left behind is the residue of their lives. All their former boyfriends and husbands call me. Huh? <laughs> I had to take them out to lunch and to dinner. I thought, what am I doing with these people? It's ridiculous. Huh? And out of that, you write a poem. I am the residue of all my daughter's lives. Huh? So you, you make this kind of note, and you're winding up with all these people, you, but I'm the sort of sucker that does that. You know, I'm much too nice for my own good, and I should be spending my time doing other things, but there I am. So, okay, now, as of this evening, as of this evening, I give you permission never to watch the 6 o'clock news ever again in your life, huh? Because haven't you had it with the 6 o'clock news, huh? And uh, you people, all right, huh? It's crap, isn't it? It's all crap. Huh? There is no news. It's herpes on Tuesday night. It's uh, prostitutes on Sunset Boulevard on Thursday night. And boy, a flamethrower would do wonders there. And <laughs> that's being Christian. And uh, so it's, it's, all, it's all cruddy, isn't it? It's just crud. And uh, I can't remember if this happened before I came up here last time. If not, uh, you'll have to bear with my repeating it. The, the ABC um, uh, local news in L.A. called me and wanted me to come on the program. And I said, why? They said, well, we're doing a show and we want you on. We're doing a tape. I said, what's the name of the show? The name of the show is What to Do After the Bomb Drops. And I said, you son of a bitch. You bastards. How dare you call me and want me to come be part of a show like that? So you can scare the hell out of everyone, huh? That's your purpose. You don't want to give us any news. You want to scare the kids, huh? At six o'clock at night? It's hard enough for us folks to, old folks to make up with that, huh? But what about the kids? You're going to send them to bed with that nightmare and scare the hell out of them? To what purpose, huh? To what purpose? I said, I tell you what, I'll come on the show if you guarantee me one thing. And they said, what? I said, guarantee me that World War III is going to start. He said, well, we can't guarantee that. I said, okay, then I can't come on, can I? He said, on the other hand, you can't guarantee it won't start. I said, that's right, and we're even, and to hell with you, and I hung up, huh? <laughs> Your purpose as writers is to help us survive, huh? To help us survive not to kill us off. We already know all these things. Now, for Christ's sake, tell us what to do. Huh? As soon as you criticize, I demand from you construction. What do we do next? Uncle Wiggly says, hop here, hop there, whatever it is. But I demand this of you, not just merely to be negative. I have gotten so sick and tired of this that I got curious about, you know, here we are in the midst of a so-called recession and we have still 10 million people unemployed, and we're being told what a terrible time it is. And I just, I'm sorry, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I believe the unemployed, but I don't believe it's a terrible time. So I got curious about this. I wrote to the Bureau of Labor Statistics about six, seven months ago, 
Jane Norwood, and I said, Dear Miss Norwood, send me back the facts on employment in the United States right now. Huh? How many people are employed in our country this evening? You know what the answer is? 100 million people are working tonight, more than ever before in the history of our country, and no one's told you. Hmm? What kind of society is that that's so negative it's afraid to tell you the good news? Hmm? You never heard it before tonight. First time you've heard it. Isn't that a shame? Huh? Now, how in hell are you going to cure the other 10 million people and help them be employed unless you know the whole picture? Huh? What are you doing right over here that you can borrow and put over here? to employ the other 10 million people. So for God's sake, what kind of society do we live in? They're telling us it's equal to the recession, the depression, 1934, 1933, not a bit of it, not a bit of it. We had only 120 million people in the country. We had 17 million people unemployed, three times more than we have today. And we have 230 million people in the country this week. Huh? So sorry, doesn't work. It's not as bad, it's plenty bad for the people are suffering. I'm giving you this frame to show you the sort of person I am and what I demand of you in your profession as excellent writers and thinkers and doers and people who care. Huh? The, but the total picture I demand and I'm trying to put you in that framework so that you can do something about it. People are always hurling this terrible phrase at me that I'm some sort of optimist. Now what in hell does that mean? Well, it only means optimal behavior. Huh? That's all it means. In other words, if you do things, things get done. It's that simple. And if you don't do things, things don't get done. So I demand of you not optimism. I demand of you optimal behavior. Huh? As of this evening, each of you is going to work your heart out huh, to become a writer. And because of that optimal behavior, you're going to get optimal results. No pie in the sky, no guarantees, no quick sales. Huh? Uh, no money, nothing, except a feeling, a fruition, because you've done your work. Huh? That's all that optimism should be, so that each of you, when you go to bed at night, says, hey, I worked today, I got my work done. And at the end of a year, you count up all the days, and all of a sudden you've got 365 pages, one page a day, and your novel is finished. Huh? That's not that hard, is it? One page a day, and a novel is done. Huh? How about two pages a day, two novels? Three pages, three novels. My God, you're on your way, huh? It's that simple. And you grouse and you put off and you don't do it, and then you wonder why you hate yourself. Remember this, every time you are depressed, that means you don't like you and you're not doing anything. So you, the answer is get off your ass, huh? Go do something. Stop talking and stop being depressed. Go take a swim if you have to so you'll feel better. Yeah. Depression is your warning. Watch for that. And don't wallow in it. Huh? Don't enjoy, oh, God, do I feel terrible. Well, I'm sorry, I walk right away from you. Have no time, no time. Now, okay, no more 6 o'clock news. Optimal behavior. <laughs> World's not going to end. Huh? Just isn't, that's all. Sorry. <laughs> it just disappoints you, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm interested in all the things we're doing right, which most people don't pay attention to because I want to write more of these. These are the grist for more articles, more stories. Uh, for instance, uh, plant engineering, plant genetics. Huh? We are the sublime country in the whole world in this area. Huh? Last year, we got the biggest surplus of food in the history of the world in the United States, all because we are excellent, because we know how to do it. We know how to, to create new varieties of soybeans, corn, 
wheat and what have you. So, my God, but we never talk about that. We're sending food to 90 countries right now. We're taking in 600,000 people a year from every nation of the world. five or six times a day by 800 cab drivers in Los Angeles, huh? You know every goddamn cab driver in L.A., huh? And they're all from Russia and Israel, Iraq, Iran, Egypt, Chad, huh? You know what they say about us? You know, we're absolutely nuts that we don't appreciate our own country. The uh, a, a Russian cab driver said to me last week, he says, better a cab driver in Los Angeles than school teacher in Nepopetrovsk, huh? So it's very simple, huh? And he, he's willing to give up his profession to live here because it's not good back home. All right, this is all a framework leading up to more ideas. The next idea is there are no political revolutions in the history of the world except a rare one partially in England and ours. Ours is the prime revolution, and we were lucky to bring it off with our intellectual leaders. 200 years ago because we were away from the hierarchies of Europe. Every other revolution is based on technology. That's why I'm in my field. That's why you should be interested in the field that I'm in. That's why you should come in. There's plenty of room, huh? All the revolutions of the world follow in the wake of technologies, and each one is more exciting. So that we have, uh, uh, starting back at the cave, the, when we began to extend our hands, and our eyeballs and our sense of hearing. So that finally, how do you extend your hand out of the cave? Well, you, you take a rock and you throw it, huh? And that rock is your hand out to kill the mammoth. Then you think, well, that's not good enough. You put a handle on the rock and your hand gets longer, doesn't it? And then you can hit harder. Then you make a spear and your hand and your arm become very long. It becomes 80 feet long. And you throw your arm. You're not throwing a spear. You're throwing your arm. You're throwing your mind, aren't you? Out to kill an animal. And then finally you invent a rifle. And your mind, your hand, your heart, your soul can go a thousand yards. Huh? And then you dream of going to the moon. And those are not machines going to the moon. That's us. Huh? That's us. Our eyes are out beyond Saturn and Jupiter now, huh? But that's, those are not machines, huh? That's us. Those are our eyeballs. 150 million miles long, a big damned long eyeball out there, and a great ear circling the earth, and we're looking at ourselves. These are not machines. These are not machines. They are us, huh? And people that come along and say, oh, aren't you afraid of computers? Say, Hell no. Uh-uh. I think they're terrific, because they are us, huh? There's nothing that all each and every computer is us. Every time you add something into a computer, you have to add a million or a billion man hours that went into creating that computer. Always add the extra factor of the human. These are not inhuman devices. They are our children, which are enabling us to save time and to save knowledge. So along the way in libraries that don't look like libraries. So this is a tremendously exciting field. Why aren't you in it? Why aren't you not more curious about every invention that came along and changed history? Napoleon, in 1800, invented the tin can. Did you know that? He needed a way of carrying food across Europe. He put up a prize of God knows how many francs and said, someone invent the tin can or invent something like it so that we don't have any more 
botulism in the world. And as a result of offering this prize, a young man outside of Paris invented the tin can, and you are all the beneficiaries of that invention 200 years later. Hmm? It's amazing, isn't it? Out of war comes construction. Everything that's good in the history of the world has come out of war. Huh? Very little has come out of any other activity. It's always been war activity. This terrible paradox that we hate, but we have to love finally because we survived by it. So, but the medieval castles, the whole structure of the, the medieval society of three or four hundred years ago was destroyed not by politics, but by the invention of the cannonball and the, and the use of, of, of fireworks and, and gunpowder. Huh? So then the politicians run after the idea. Once it's established in the world as a technological fact, then the politicians run after it. Huh? Have you ever seen anyone in Washington the last 60 years give us any leadership? Huh? And they all run after a thing long after the fact. They get hysterical occasionally when they hear about genetic engineering, uh, but they don't know anything about it, but they get hysterical anyway. Huh? So that, that's the fascinating thing, that these things come into the world, and then we have to make laws to, to make do with them. We're trying to find ways of making do with the pill the last 20 years. It suddenly it bursts upon us. The blacks of... Uh, of uh, our Mer American culture were freed not by political activity, but by the impacting of all of our technologies on all of us. Huh? The radios that talked to, us, talked to us in the long night 50 years ago, uh, after it was first invented, spoke of far places, other cities, opportunities, and chances for advancement to the poor on every level, black and white. Had nothing to do with politics. So we all listened to those radios, didn't we? Then television began to come along, the war came along, and then better horticultural methods, better ways of planting and harvesting. Next thing you knew, the black was off the farm, kicked off. Huh? That wasn't political, it was technological. That was horticultural. So what did he do? He bought himself a $10 tin Lizzie. Huh? You could buy cars for 10 or 20 bucks in those days. You still can't, did you know that? You can buy a car for 20 bucks today. Well, you can't go very far in it. But you can buy it. I know my aunt bought a, a car in 1934 for 20 bucks, an old tin Lizzie, came west and sold it for 21 bucks in 1939, made a dollar profit on the deal. And uh, so suddenly you have then the horticultural revolution, the farm equipment revolution, and suddenly about 5% of our people are on the farms instead of 50% the way it was 100 years ago. That's not political, you see. That's technological. That's mankind inventing ways of living better, huh? And now we have to, suddenly we've got all the blacks in the cities. We didn't expect them there because of the revolution of horticulture and, and plant implementation. And we don't know what to do with them because there they are on the door, door sill all of a sudden. We're always surprised by these things. Maybe someday we'll learn to predict far enough ahead so we can be ready for people when they show up on our doorstep. But the immigration that's been coming into the country is only possible because of the invention of better ships, isn't it? Huh? All these things keep going up and up the scale. So that's why I'm fascinated with the field I'm in, trying to guess ahead another 20 years, another 40 years, another 80 years. I went over to a sound studio the other day and uh, listened to music coming out of a com computer. They've got uh, m machines now, digital machines, that can edit up to a billionth of a second. That precise. They can go in and edit a, a musical score without all that tedious 
playing back and forth of the tape and tell the computer what they want and the computer will then go in and edit a musical tape for them in one hour as against, I suppose, 24 hours a few, well, last year. Huh? All these amazing things that are coming to play in our society. Now, I'm reminded of a thing that happened to, in, in reference to this when I was on, um, I was at Jet Propulsion Lab seven, eight years ago when we landed on Mars and I stayed up all night with Carl Sagan and Bruce Murray and around um, six in the morning the first photographs came back from Mars and I think we were all celebrated, didn't we, and wept and, and, and laughed and danced around and most of us stayed up that night and there were the first photos coming back from Mars and at nine in the morning Roy Neal put me on CBS Telstar and he interviewed me and said, how does it feel, Mr. Bradbury? Uh, you've been writing about Mars all of your life, civilization on Mars, people on Mars, and now all of a sudden this morning the first photographs come back and there's no life on Mars. And my response was, fool, fool, there is life on Mars, and it is us. It is us. Huh? So I took care of that right there. Go. So I cut right across the negative thing immediately. Now here's another item that was in the paper. I can't remember if I read this last year. Uh, God, I hope not, but it's damn good anyway. What the hell? Um, news item. This is where you get ideas. News item. Scientists predict with new gene chromosome research, we may soon be able to repopulate the world with once lost races of animals. God, isn't that exciting, huh? What would you like to bring back first, huh? I bet you can't guess what I want first, huh? All right, well, here's the poem anyway. With recombined DNA, recall from dust, the beasts that once were ours to keep in trust, shape mammoth fresh and new, as on that morn when all the flesh of ancient time was born. Rebuild the pterodactyl, give him flight, erect Tyrannosaurus in the night, wake Brontosaur who dreams in tar pit deeps, go tiptoes where the Eohippus sleeps, then with your recombined DNAs thrive slimes and muds, where Stegosaurus stays. Be God, provoke his medicines, cry light, and all the lost beasts wake, raise up from night. Ecologists beware, these are our theses. You doomsters now are prime endangered species. Okay. okay. Did you know the Last Supper wasn't really the Last Supper? Huh? Any good Christians here? that remember what I'm talking about? No good Christians here? All right. <laughs> well, I, I'd forgotten about it. You know, you learn these things when you're a young, bored Baptist <laughs> trying to sleep through Sunday somehow. And uh, MGM called me in about 23 years ago, and they were doing a new version of King of Kings. And they had no ending for the film. And uh, I said, have you tried the Bible? And they said, well, don't, uh, don't uh, muddy the waters. We want you to come in and write an ending for the film. <laughs> so I went in, and I started rereading the, the four Gospels. And by gosh, I came across in the book of John the supper, the penultimate supper, the supper after the Last Supper. Most of us have forgotten after the miracle of the fish, when Simon called Peter is out on the Sea of Galilee at night, the miracle of the fish occurs, and he's with his other disciples, and they pull into the shore, and there on the beach in the early morning, they see 
standing by a bed of fish that's cooking there, and this is a week after the crucifixion of Christ and his vanishing from the tomb. They see standing on the beach the ghost of Christ, and they draw near and they peer through the smoke, and they question this figure, and they don't quite believe, and Christ lifts his hand up into the light, and there's blood dripping from the mark on his wrist, huh? And they know then they are faced with Jesus. And he speaks of them, he says, Take of these fish and feed thy brethren, and go through the nations of the world and preach therein forgiveness of sin. And he sends the disciples on their way. So that's the supper, that's the true last supper, isn't it? But we've forgotten about it. So that's the stuff for a poem, isn't it? And who wrote it? I did. And you're not going to hear it. So, but a little applause for that, please. Uh, <laughs> but here, here's another you are going to hear because it describes my character and the way I go hunting for ideas wherever I can possibly find them. And it's called The Collector Speaks. And it's based on so many things as as time goes by with your daughters and we've had 14 cats and friends, etc., etc., and all the junk you collect in your life. The Smithsonian people came to my office about five years ago, stuck their head in my office, looked around and said, you're hired. <laughs> and I said, why? They said, it looks like our basement. And I think that's what a writer's office should look like, huh? A junkyard, absolute junkyard, where you can't find any damn thing anytime you're looking for it and you find it, stumble over it and break your neck years later. But here's a poem I've done about myself and my collecting habits. It's so hard for me to let anything stay, leave anything lost on the road. We changed our wallpaper yesterday. Times Goad said, touch, not only touch, but keep that sample of old up there by the mold. Ye gods, I can let no mere things sink to sleep. I long for our cats beneath the turf under our garden grass. The sliver shard of agate glass from some old game is mine. That shame I'm sure I share with those like me who suffer change immoderately. I cram my files with the oddment pictures, ancient rictures of smiles and frowns, views of nameless towns and mindless bogs, whiskers of various dogs, hair of the frogs that left us all as boys, all toys, broken or mended, Every road map we ever wended or strode, ships of brick from the baked red road out front of my house, ancient button of Mickey Mouse, Buck Rogers ring that can code, decode, locks of my loves, all women, all daughters, mineral waters from the downtown shop where hair crops were scythed by our ancient barber, whose harbor of locks was a mythic tomb where now came nephew, now came niece to offer plates for a golden fleece. All that, you cry, no room, no room for you. Ah, yes, that may well be, but plenty of upstairs, search beam, lighthouse room, touch brow, thank God, in me. All right. And you can't stop, can you? Not really, you shouldn't. Anything that... If you go into a bookstore and open a book and there's one idea in it, huh? Just grab it, buy it, and run. Or if you're in a library, for God's sake, get out of there, take the book home. Uh, I used to drive my relatives mad because I'd bring home ten books from the library at once. And they'd say, you can't possibly read them. I said, I'm not, he I'm not here to read them. I'm in search. huh? And I'm in search of me. If I find an author that is me in some mysterious way, then I read the whole thing. 
But otherwise, I'm in search of ideas, huh? The littlest thing in a book, or when we go to movies, the, the, the smallest idea that lies there in the middle of the film and no one uses. You wait for someone to use it during the whole picture, and they don't. Then it's yours, isn't it? Huh? And you, you take it home, and you write a story around that unused portion of the movie. Now, um, when the Disney people approached me, a couple of years ago to work on Epcot, which just opened down at Disney World. It was a huge project. And again, how do you get ideas to fill a $40 million building? What they wanted was a 500-year history of mankind in the world in 17 minutes flat with a full symphony orchestra. They said, can you do it? I said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's such arrogance. But the arrogance comes from my ability to collide with metaphors, of trusting this junkyard inside of my head where I put all these things over the years, all the poetry and all the films and all the pictures. And then finally you just stumble across that and on your way you hit upon a metaphor. And uh, during the last, about six years ago when I was working for the Disney people, I came across the works of Schliemann again in God's Graves and Scholars by uh, C.W. Serum. And the life of C.W. Serum and the life of, uh, of, of Schliemann are examples for all of us. There isn't a one of you here tonight that doesn't exemplify what we discuss when we discuss the finding of Troy. Hmm? Because when Schliemann was 10 years old, he fell in love with the ancient city of Troy. All of his friends told him it was mythic, it was a fairy tale, never existed. Blind Homer made it up, so don't bother. Hmm? And he, he persisted in his dream, his madness. And when he was 20, and when he was 30, and when he was 40, and when he was 45, he says, I will go and I will find Troy. Huh? I will dig where blind Homer told me to dig. And by God, I'll find it. And he kept that dream all these years. And he went off when he was around 50 years old, I believe, and he went about a mile north of where Homer told him to dig, and he dug there, and he found not one Troy, but nine levels of the city of Troy going down into the dust. Huh? And after he left, other archaeologists found 30 more Troys, 39 Troys altogether, where there wasn't supposed to be one. Now, that's incredible, isn't it? Now, what does this tell you about yourself, huh? That... There are people that tell you constantly, don't they? Here's your metaphor, that you have no Troy in you. Huh? You are not talented. You have no ideas. You should go find some other job. Huh? And you're here tonight to hear from me and everyone else at the conference. Go dig for Troy anyway. And to hell with these people. Huh? Get them out of your lives and keep on digging the rest of this week, the rest of this year, the rest of your life. Again, with no guarantees. But if Schliemann could do it, in the midst of being surrounded by people who doubted everything he said and everything he dreamt. Huh? We could do the same. So we all start the same way. We all have to cross the tracks, don't we? We all start poor. I lived in Venice, California uh, 37 years ago with my wife, and uh, she supported me for three years so that I could get my work done. We both made around $32 a week at our jobs, my selling stories when I could, and she working at Abbey Rents. And uh, I got on the bus to, uh, to, to uh, New York City about 35, 36 years ago and went off. 
and uh, on the Greyhound bus hoping to sell a book to Doubleday or someone back there. I carried my typewriter in my lap and my heart rumps vocabularies, and I rode across country, and I lived at the YMCA in New York City at $5 a week, and I went to have meetings with the Doubleday people, and during these meetings they said, well, we don't publish short stories. Don't you have a novel? I said, no, I'm not a novelist. I'm a sprinter. The short thing is perfect for me. They said, well, what about all those Martian stories of yours? Wouldn't they make a novel? I said, gee, well, you know, I'd forgotten when I started writing all these Martian stories, in the back of my mind was putting together a catalog of characters like Winesburg, Ohio, that I'd read when I was 24. So by God, I went back to the YMCA that night, sat down, wrote an outline, and took it back to Doubleday the next day, and I got a $500 advance, which was a lot of money, you know, 35 years ago, and rode home to my pregnant wife in triumph on the Greyhound bus. Huh? And that's how the damn book got started. Yeah. But let's see now, what else did I bring along with me? You know, the, just to remind you of what science fiction is, I think I read this poem last year, but the title I want to remind you of, it's not my title, it's William Butler Yeats. It's the last line of his sailing to Byzantium. And the line reads, of what is past or passing or to come. Huh? Of what is past or passing or to come. That's what the idea beast is in, in the world. That's what we are. This human creature that dreams, imagines, and creates. Huh? Everything that's past, everything that's passing now, everything that's to come is ours. Huh? We create the whole damn thing. We're the only creatures on this world that think and create. Huh? We are remarkable in the history of our ideas, starting at the cave, all up through time to here, and on into the future. I wish I could come back once every 40 years to see what we're going to be doing with our computers, with this, these sound devices, with the digital computers, with the symphonic musics we're going to be writing, with the movies we're going to be making 40 years from now, what we're going to be doing with television, uh, better than right now, I hope, indeed, <laughs> as we all do. But nevertheless, the provocative thing of the idea beast surviving on Earth and then moving to the moon and going to Mars and then out on into the universe, which is where we're going. It's tremendously exciting. And when you consider our history, it's impossible that we're here right now, isn't it? We're totally impossible. We're incredible creatures. And uh, I, I think we're worth celebrating. So I try to get this into my work without going overboard, but that line of Yeats, of what is past or passing or to come, describes the history of our ideas and how we survive by them and why we should be excited by them. Get a good, there's a good book of famous scientists put out by Scientific American, which has the very short lives of Lavoisier, Benjamin Franklin, um, uh, Einstein, right on down the line, these incredible people who uh, Priestley, who created uh, at the beginning of time, on up through our time and toward the future. And what I did is to read and reread these essays and write poems around the edges of the pages, huh? and then carry over the next page, and then in the back of the book. So the whole damn book now is full of my poetry around the edges of these people's lives, and some of it's good and some of it's bad. Uh, but uh, a man like Franklin, incredible man, incredible man. Uh, what do you know about him? Uh, we need more people like him in the world today as our leaders, don't we? 
We don't have any politicians like that. It was all around scientists, all around politicians, all around philosopher, printer, inventor, you name it. Um, I fell in love during the last year with Lafayette. What do you know about Lafayette, huh? Uh, why aren't you curious? You know who Lafayette was? Errol Flynn. Huh? <laughs> Lafayette was Errol Flynn. We've had this problem of selling American history to ourselves, and we've had the solution in our midst for uh, 70 years, and we haven't used it. We have these wonderful people, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, uh, Franklin, but they, are, they don't look well on the screen, huh? They don't play well. Uh, their ideas are very intellectual, and thank God for that, because they create our country. But Lafayette arrives, and he does what? He creates our revolution for us. He is totally responsible, along with Rochambeau and Franklin himself, of course. But the French fought the American Revolution, gave us our provender, gave us our uniforms, huh? brought the ships over, and won all the important battles. Did you learn this in school? I very much doubt that you did. Huh? But Lafayette arrived here when he was 19 years old. He was handsome. He was beautiful. The whole damn country fell in love with him. Huh? Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Franklin. This young man shows up so beautiful, he's irresistible. And he cuts a swath across the country, and he brings in his own troops and ships and gunpowder and uniforms to make people proud. And he helps us fight and win our revolution. Then he goes home and he starts the French Revolution. Huh? Two revolutions for the price of one. What a man. And no one's ever touched him. Huh? Now for Christ's sake, go touch him. And someone here do a six-hour special on Lafayette and his impact on history. Because he's beautiful. He's exciting. He's romantic. He's, he's lovely. Huh? incredible man and you don't know a thing about him and I didn't know that much about him until about a year ago so these are where the ideas are you say there are no ideas God they're all over the place and there isn't enough time I, I, I wish I had more time to go back and learn about all the other people I've been reading more on Benjamin Franklin recently but good God uh, life is full of these amazing things okay uh, let's see how we're doing here a few more stories, and then, I don't know, are we supposed to have a question period? I don't know if we are. Okay, all right. Uh, let me finish, let me uh, wind up with a short story now, which I just sold, I just sold a couple stories to Playboy, which will be out late in the year, and after you get done looking at the pictures, you can read the stories. I want you to know I've got six rejection slips this week, huh? Six rejection slips this week. Two from McCall's, one from today's woman, one from Vanity Fair. And what the hell do they know, huh? <laughs> Pretty dumb, huh? Pretty dumb. <laughs> so it still happens to me. still happens to me, and I haven't figured it out after all these years. But the story I sold to Playboy I want to tell to you because it's indicative of my character and our time and what I think we can do about it. My story is called... The Toynbee Convector. Now, what in hell that means, I don't know. I have no way of knowing. But it sure sounds good, doesn't it, huh? And Toynbee, of course, was always telling us that when the wave of the future runs toward you, you run toward it. Otherwise, you're ground under in history. So I have written a short story about a young man in 1985 who invents a time machine and goes 100 years into the future and prowls around and comes back with a message of joy for the world. He says, my God, we did it. We did it. We're wonderful. And everybody says, what, what, what? He says, in the future, we cleaned the air. We cleaned the streams. We cleaned the oceans. We saved the dolphins. We saved the whales. 
We stopped cancer. We stopped heart disease. We put solar beam collectors up in the air and collected the light of the sun to beam it back to the earth to light all the cities of the world. We recolonized the moon. We went on to Mars and we're headed for Alpha Centauri to live forever. We did it. By God, we did it. And the world runs mad with joy at this good news and then proceeds to rush to build that future. The young man in the puts his time machine up on props down La Jolla and retires. He lectures occasionally, he writes a book about his travels, and a hundred years go by. On the hundredth anniversary of his journey into the future, I, as a young reporter, in the year 2084, go to visit the time traveler. It's a day of paradoxes. The whole world has come there. All the kings and queens and statesmen and, and uh, politicians of the world are in La Jolla with champagne to celebrate this fabulous man who changed history, who is now 125 years old. I'm there to interview him and to drink champagne with the others. And to perceive the paradox at four o'clock in the afternoon, there will be two of these men in existence at the same moment. The old man, 125 years old, standing next to me, and the young man who will appear in his time machine flashing over the cities of the world, over Bombay and Paris, around New York, and back to La Jolla at four o'clock in the afternoon. Two of them at the same moment. At four o'clock in the afternoon, we open the champagne, we stand ready to celebrate the paradox, we look at the sky, four o'clock, Nothing. Five minutes after four, nothing. Ten minutes after four, nothing in the sky. Fifteen minutes after four, nothing. I turn and look at the time traveler and he says, I lied. <laughs> I said, what, 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 what? He says, I lied. I said, he said, I couldn't stand the time I lived in. Negativity, depressions. Uh, uh, downgrading, go to bed, suicidal at 11 o'clock, waking up in the morning wanting to kill yourself, the four horsemen of the apocalypse riding the horizon with the fifth horseman despair close behind. I was, we're inundated. We were celebrating a funeral and the funeral was us. We couldn't get off our own case. Huh? And I said to myself, what can I do to save myself, my friends, my town, my state, my country, the world from this depression of thought and this doom-ridden intellectuality? What can I do? And wandering through the library one night, I put my hand out and took a book off the shelf and opened it. I said, oh my God, oh bless you, Mr. H.G. Wells, the time machine. I said, I will build me such a machine and I will pretend to go into the future and I will change history. And the rest you know. So now very late in time, young man, put me in the time machine for a last journey. I said, but you just told me it doesn't work. He says, this time it will. This time it will. Put me in the machine. Put him in the machine. He says, now name me and pull the lever. And I name him the time traveler and I pull the lever and he has a heart attack and he dies and he travels back in time forever. And weeping with tears rolling down my cheeks and off my chin, I turn to an elevator and rise up into the golden world of clean skies and clean oceans and saved dolphins and saved whales and solar energy and cancers cured and the moon colonized and Mars colonized and heading for Alpha Centauri, all because one man with one lie made it so. There you I sure will. Maybe one or two fast questions. It's late and it's very warm in here. 
a couple of qu fast questions. Okay, here we go. How do I like the final version of Something Wicked This Way Come? Very much. It's a lovely film. And uh, I don't know how many of you saw it, but uh, I'm very proud of it. And uh, took, took a lot of threatening and a lot of bamboozling and a lot of uh, cudgeling and a lot of sense of humor to get it finished. But the, I think the scene in the library at, toward the end of the film, and that's true of the novel, of course, I'm very proud of, is the, one of the greatest scenes I ever put on the screen. The Jonathan Price playing Mr. Dark and, and Jason Robards playing the father. It's a terrifyingly beautiful scene. So when it comes back, someday in the next few years, I hope you'll take a look at it. Yes, uh, another question. Is that it? Well, let's quit while we're ahead. Thank you very much. Well, that means the conference is officially open. Ray Bradbury has spoken. Ray, thank you very, very much. And come next year, please. Uh, we will see you here at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. Get your copy of the bulletin as you leave. And sleep well. we got a long week ahead. And this concludes the opening session of the 11th Annual Santa Barbara Writers' Conference. The conference will reconvene tomorrow morning and will be recorded on tape number two.